इसको हम कैसे बोलेंगे सुनो सब वापस तो सुनना है ना और जब हमें देखना हो कि इसको लिखेंगे कैसे हिंदी में तो इसको उल्टा कर दो इंग्लिश हिंदी कर दो तो ये नीचे हिंदी में लिख देगा आ गया आई एम एम पी That was a group of children learning how to speak English in an underground bunker in Baran. They were using a modified tablet that converted Hindi into English using Google Translate. It's actually how they were being taught to navigate computers and the internet, and they would not have been able to do so if it weren't for the inventiveness of their tutor, Kapil Jain, one of many young people who had left the city behind to teach and mentor India's rural youth. Welcome to the third episode of Right to Know. The unheard will not remain unseen. At only 585 kilometers from Delhi, the road to the ancient city of Chanderi was less a freeway than it was a mix of sand, rubble, and shattered bitumen. Accidents are common. A motorbike rider struck one of our cars, so I leapt out to help drag the bike and the rider off the road, where incoming traffic was banking up as other vehicles attempted to push through. Regardless, I tended to the injured rider when a minibus filled with Buddhist monks broke down nearby. I ran over with a couple of my crew to help push their bus out of the sand and muck, and then behind us a truck of incomprehensible proportions broke down. Jasbir, our driver, called out, come, come, we had to leave immediately. Things were getting out of control. Realising later, if we were blamed for this traffic jam in the desert, there would be mayhem and we would not get to Chanderi. You, you just don't want to run foul of mob justice in India. When we first arrived, we passed three or four fully naked Jain worshippers walking insufferable distances to reach their holy monuments there. And then the sound of looms. Everywhere representing movement born of physical, if but repetitive, motion, without even so much as a fossil-fueled spindle found anywhere in Chenderi's finely engineered maze of timber and twine. came to Chanderi to visit the cloth weavers who had signed up to the Digital Empowerment Foundation's integrated cluster of Chanderi weavers, or simply Chanderian. 
Chenderian is housed in the Raj Mahal, a 15th century palace. The descendants of its 17th century occupants still live there, but without the splendour and opulence that their ancestors enjoyed. Chenderi is a little-known town steeped in antiquity, located in the Ashoknagar district in Madhya Pradesh. In former times, the magnificent forts that look out over Chenderi protected the southern regions of India from the invading armies of the far north. Fertile agricultural lands, fresh water and the produce of 4,500 weavers are in abundance here. So too the evidence of their new wealth, cars, scooters, housing developments and renovations. We stayed in one of Chandera's first hotels, which had opened in 2014, less than a year prior to our arrival. When I first met Osama Manza, the co-founder of the Digital Empowerment Foundation, he told me of the ancient skills of the weavers at Chanderi. He described a legion of weavers with basic computer skills using customised software. It was these stories that led me here. Chanderian was to grow into a successful social enterprise, providing a means for weavers to value their labour, subsequently improving the well-being of their families, which saw many of them purchase their first refrigerators, scooters and for some, even SUVs, too large to drive through Chanderi's laneways, causing traffic jams in a town built for walking and donkeys. Chanderi's weavers or those fortunate to avail themselves of the opportunities Chanderian provides, appeared emboldened by new technologies, access to information and the means to protect both their heritage and historical enterprise. In the south of the country, their former British rulers had destroyed every loom they could find, and in some instances it's been recorded that they hacked off the thumbs of the weavers should they try to rebuild their looms. This was in the 19th century, but in the 21st century, it's not the British who regulate the weavers' trade, it's the master weavers, a kind of middleman. The master weaver provides materials and designs, and in return, weavers are paid a modest fee for each sari they produce. Chanderian does away with these middlemen. It began with the creation of a centre for design where weavers would work up their own designs, some based on the exotic stone carvings found throughout the city. This included computer-controlled lathes that turn out wooden stencils and punch cards that resemble piano rolls, and complex patterns printed onto grid paper which are used as a kind of code to instruct how cotton or silk will be woven through their intricate looms. The Chanderian Enterprise also installed the first wireless network in Chanderi, a fee-for-service utility for townsfolk. An e-commerce website soon followed, and now Chanderian weavers can reach national and global markets on their own. They kind of become their own master weavers, controlling both the creation and distribution of their products. They also earn a great deal more than any of the other weavers we met, or so we were told. The entire operation is underpinned by self-help groups formed to reach out to weavers across the city inviting their participation in the social enterprise. 
All this in a town that, until 2009, had no motorised transport competing for space on their tiny streets and laneways. The process of outreach to the broader community of weavers in Chanderi is ongoing, while many are benefiting from the changes that have given Chanderi the status of being one of India's first so-called smart cities, others are still finding their way in the slums at the rear of the city, and we met some of them. One morning, our guide took us on a tour of Chanderi's back streets. I wanted to meet weavers who weren't part of the social enterprise. He took us to a multi-storey dwelling, ascending what must have been at least four or five floors. The stairs were steep and uneven. He led us to the rooftop where we arrived, by the look of things unannounced, into a makeshift shack where five young women sat, two of them on huge looms, taking up most of the space. We met Razia and Nazreen, who lived here with eight other young women and their children. They showed us how they slept under these looms and told us the labyrinth below housed around 120 people. All of these women worked in these looms every single day, taking turns and telling us they often earned less than what their products were worth. I was told later by my colleagues from Delhi that Poor people always say this, that they earn less than they are worth. Some even went so far as to suggest that these women and others like them may, may actually be rich. Razia, Nazreen and their sisters told us they know little of the world below. They barely know how to fend for themselves, relying entirely on the meagre income they earn from their boss, the local master weaver. Some of the girls were too afraid to, to leave the rooftop shack. Others described not knowing how to purchase anything at any of Chanderi's markets. And they also told us that they didn't know about Chanderian. They had heard of the computer centre, but they had no idea how it could be of use. Even if they did, these young rooftop weavers told us they preferred the certainty of a smaller monthly income than the uncertainty of the computer centre. So many, many questions. Our guide was the son of Chanderian's co-founder, so how is it that these women, known to him, hadn't been invited to any of the local support groups? And why wouldn't he want them involved in Chanderian? And what of the master weavers themselves? I, I wasn't sure why they were cut out of the social enterprise. Surely they had families to feed as well. And we left Chanderi with many unanswered questions, returning to Delhi before leaving for Patna. In Patna, we would find the barefoot broadcaster and the Buddha's lake of shame. Yeah, 
1,082 kilometers from Delhi and an overnight train later, we arrived in the city of Patna. We took a couple of old black cabs from the station, having had our gear hauled across all sorts of rail yard terrain by the by what looked like the hardest working porters on planet Earth. It was hot, the air barely breathable and everything stunk of rotting flesh and fruit and stagnant excrement and, and water. Eventually we got to our accommodation, a dusty compound across the road from a Buddhist shrine encircled by a fetid, stinking lake. It looked like everything rotten had been thrown in there. I'd seen polluted rivers throughout Asia, but a dead lake in front of one of the most sacred of Buddhist shrines in India. Pilgrims, I was told, come here all year round to meditate on the teachings of the Buddha, who had himself meditated nearby, sometime between the 6th and 4th centuries. I couldn't understand how such sacred places could ever be left in such an abysmal state. But by nightfall, the muck on the lake couldn't be seen, so we dined out in the open, nearby our rooms, with fires lit in the courtyard the night sky ablaze with stars in unfamiliar positions. In the morning, we were going to meet Kieran and her husband Raghav, the barefoot pirate broadcaster. Raghav and his wife Kiran live in a village just out of Mansapur, a small rural town about an hour's drive from the polluted lake. When we arrived, their home was still wet with cow dung. Cow dung is used to seal the dusty earthen floors both inside and out. Food was being prepared on a clay oven in the courtyard and children from neighbouring homes stood nearby watching us set up our gear. Kieran had graduated from university. Raghav is a self-taught radio technician and pirate broadcaster. He's also illiterate. They are a formidable duo. Raghav, a quietly spoken man, used to build and repair radios, eventually working out how to amplify the signal of a wireless microphone and this gave him the ability to broadcast local folk music to anyone within a 15km radius. In the heyday of Raghav's self-made pirate radio station, he had around 15,000 listeners tuned into his morning broadcasts. Turns out women were his biggest supporters. Kieran explained that the local music her husband played connected women to each other, giving them something to listen to as they churned through their daily chores in their homes or fields. His self-made radios would sell during festivals such as Holi. He had both the skills to build these radios and the means of transmission. That is, 
He was both host and producer of his programs, and he built the means to distribute and receive his broadcasts. This was a micromedia empire. I asked if he had any idea how many radios he had ever made. He smiled, uncountable. He said. Word got around about this unlicensed, young and illiterate broadcaster reaching villages on homemade equipment. His popularity backfired, bringing his broadcasting career to a short-lived end. You see, the Indian government had him shut down because he didn't have a broadcast license. So they threatened him with exorbitant fines. And Raghav didn't even know what a broadcast license was. The means to broadcast was in his hands, so why couldn't you make use of it? But Raghav is also an honest and a a kind of humble man. So he insisted his radio station had robbed the government of broadcast licensing fees. So he agreed to shut it down. But this is also a story about two young lovers from different ethnic groups. Kiran's family tried all they could to discourage her from marrying Raghav, but she was committed to spending her life with him. She explained that she wanted to be with a man who had the energy and capacity to teach himself rather than someone who had no respect for her education. Their relationship, she said, would always be interesting and there would be much they could do together. time we arrived, their partnership had yielded a popular yet modest information resource centre. They conducted daily computer and internet training for anyone, school children in particular. Even members of the local council or panchayat took after-hours lessons there. And Kieran told me that the councillors took the evening lessons because they didn't want the young to see how uneducated their elders were. When I met Kieran, she told me she dreamt of the day Raghav would once again broadcast over the local airwaves, this time with a broadcast license, when once more women may be united through their music and their chores less demanding. Kieran and Raghav's resource centre supported itself through modest fees, both from courses and selling access to broadband wireless. But by early 2017, sadly they could no longer afford the Runda Centre and I believe had to shut it down. That was episode three. In our final and fourth episode, we look at the perils of social activism in India and whether learning how to use Microsoft Notepad and Paint is digital literacy. I'll also want to share with you a lovely song sung to us in a special school for girls who could not be taught anywhere else. Thank you for listening.